Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Today, I'm joined by my guest and friend, Charlie McKee. Charlie is the executive director of Marquee International, which is a privately held business advisory and investment firm, which is focused on the airline hospitality and also the competitive sport sectors in a global capacity. Charlie's professional passion is to build high profile travel brands at whatever life cycle stage they are. And he recently led the team at a major Nordic airline in mapping out the future of airline retailing. He's been chief marketing officer at Air Canada and architect of its early moves to revolutionize the commercial model. He's helped Malaysia Airlines at a critical time at its recovery, and he's worked with Richard Branson of Virgin Atlantic Airways to establish itself in Asia. He has deep ties to the hospitality sector. He's been Chief Commercial Officer at Radisson Hotel Groups America and Chief Marketing Officer at Delta Hotels and Resorts. His company, Marquee International Sports Portfolio includes partnerships in the Ice Academy of Montreal, which is the world's leading ice dance training center. Marquee International Arts, an ice-focused talent representation agency, and Equine CH, a European horse importation and breeding venture based in Virginia, USA. So listen in as Charlie and I talk about his journey of leadership, success, and of making a difference. Listen in, enjoy. Charles McKee, 
Welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me, my friend. I'm excited to have a conversation with you. I know you've got lots to share, lots for our listeners to uh, learn and uh, uncover in our conversation. So thanks, man. Thank you, Patrick. It's absolutely fantastic to be here. Certainly strange times, but good to be here. Isn't it a strange time? You know what I've been, because there's always a lag time between when we actually do this conversation and the actual release, it's going to be interesting to see where we are today in this conversation versus what it will be, you know, in let's say two weeks or four weeks or whatever it happened, the lag time is of the release of this, because things are changing so quickly given what's happening. It's it really, we're down to, I think, really half day planning cycles. Uh, and this is how we understand time has been completely thrown out the window. It has, hasn't it? It's a really test for us to uh, be present to stay present because getting out in future thinking too much would be really a waste of thought because we just don't know. That's true. <laughs> so exercise don't spend too much time future thinking. No, exercise of futility or fiction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Charles, this whole conversation, you know, what we're, it's really about seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results and you certainly qualify for that. But let's give our listeners a little bit of background Tell me if you were to do what your 30 second elevator pitch, somebody walks up and says, so Charlie, what do you do? What's your, what's your answer to that question well, these I, days? I, well, <laughs> I knew I, if you'd asked me uh, two weeks ago, I could have told you certainly. <laughs> yeah. Now I can tell you in five seconds. <laughs> no, yeah. no, just by way of background. So I come out of um, the corporate world, uh, about 30 years in the travel industry with a, with a big focus on the airline sector, uh, hospitality sector as well as uh, something we call destination marketing. Formerly Chief Marketing Officer for Air Canada, uh, was one of uh, Richard Branson's uh, original henchmen when he started his airline in the UK many years ago. Generally, what I do, though, is I really I work with brands that are, are doing things. Uh, brands that are either they're at that trajectory where they're starting up or whether they are accelerating their growth, or if they've hit, and hit a very difficult patch, um, I do a lot of workout. Uh, uh, activity as well. So um, example of that is I was the chief marketing officer of Malaysia Airlines after they lost uh, two airplanes and unfortunately many, many uh, customers and, and, and staff. Um, currently though, I've got a consulting uh, practice uh, based here in Toronto. We do advisory and uh, investment, uh, again, primarily in the travel space. Current client is uh, a major European airline. So it's been very interesting over the last month helping them to really become a minimal airline, dropping their flying by 90%. But now thinking about the various scenarios of recovery. So again, you know, in a very uh, accelerated fashion, looking at the life cycle of a company. So that's, that's kind of the, if you will, the, the professional, I can bring it home to mother uh, work that I do. But also over the last two years, I've had the uh, tremendous pleasure of kind of pursuing passions uh, beyond what I've been doing for the last 30 years. Uh, and that has led me down the road of, uh, number one, uh, starting a horse importation and breeding business. And then number two, uh, working with uh, some absolutely fantastic partners in the area of uh, ice. So figure skating in particular, uh, both in terms of high performance training and then also in talent representation of, uh, of some of the world's best uh, ice skaters. Yeah, and that's one where you and I actually started to get to meet and know each other a little bit That's and right. uh, was in that end point of entry. And 
and you know some fun you know kind of anecdotal stories to share about running into each other and you know coming across <laughs> you know, paths crossing in this really weird kind of way which was was very very interesting and and so where I want to take this in in terms of a conversation because you've got so many points of entry but let's talk a little bit about you know what you did in the space of marketing and airlines and and Virgin Airlines Air Canada all of the you know some of the big names that you've worked for but you said something that was interesting Charles which was you know, you like to get in where you start to see where you see some trajectory, some that point of of maybe uh, lines crossing and where you see the potential for some real trajectory and growth where you can step in and support that. Where do you get that from? Like, because that's a little bit, is that intuitive? Do you have data that you use? Like, how do you actually assess where you're going to, where you would take on that that task or that particular job because yeah. you say there's an opportunity for me to really, really hit it out of the park here. Is, is that just from years of experience got, what is it for you? So for me, I think that the, um, the, the essential ingredient in this is it starts with um, the confidence that's built up over time through experience, both success and failure and the confidence in looking at situations from angles that perhaps don't seem, appear to be obvious on the surface. So really it's about, for, for me, it is what is the problem we're solving or what is the conundrum here? Um, and I think that's really born out of curiosity. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the underlying all of this is this, this, this confidence and curiosity that uh, allows one to approach an uncertain situation uh, differently. Uh, it does absolutely have to be born out of, of, of data uh, at some point. Uh, but I think that even before that, there is a, there's almost a, an intuitive, there's almost, it's almost a challenge. Uh, and it's that sense of challenge, I think, that has been consistent, uh, despite the, the, the range of different experiences uh, that I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of having. But this is, I mean, the, the airline industry is, a, is not a, you know, it's a pretty complicated industry in terms of, I mean, fighting for market share, pricing, profitability. I mean, gosh, getting a message across and inspiring people to choose an airline, very, very competitive. So when you talk about taking on jobs that are challenging, that that had to show up as one of the big challenges. How do you take that airline and have them stand out as a leader, right? Yes. Yeah. In fact, actually, I think I, we've got a very good example of that in Air Canada. Um, and just by way of background, you know, if we go back 20 years, uh, if we think about Air Canada in 2000, uh, they just acquired, at that point, Canadian Airlines. Uh, so they had the indigestion of, uh, of a merger, if you will. But then they also had to go very, very quickly into 9-11, uh, into SARS, uh, into some major cataclysmic uh, events. And all of those events created these external factors um, that, that were a challenge, a challenge for all airlines. But, you know, it was those cataclysmic events that caused us to sit back and say, okay, something's wrong here. There's something, you know, we have, we're a business that is all about fixed costs and we have no predictability in revenue. We have no outlook on our revenue. And, and really, why is that? And what is, how can we fix that? And it really got down to reflecting on trust. And, you know, because by their own fault, admittedly, the airline industry has done a very, very bad job in building trust with customers. Yes, trust with safety. But if you think about airline pricing, which is really the mechanism of how airlines interact with their customers. It, 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 was, it was opaque pricing. It was uh, complex pricing. 
It was pricing that was driven more for optimization of algorithms as opposed to what customers really needed. Uh, and Air Canada did the right thing. Uh, this is back in 2004. They completely and radically overhauled their pricing structures, introducing things like one-way fares, getting rid of things like Saturday night stay requirements. Um, all of these things, introducing innovative products like flight passes uh, to provide more convenience and put less emphasis on the shopping and more on the use of, of travel. And so it was, it was born out of hardship, frankly, that the airline was able to transform. And, you know, it was 10 years of really hard work and flying into a little bit of the unknown with regards to will customers respond to this? How will our competitors respond to this? Uh, is it having the desired effect? What are we learning? How do we consolidate those lessons? But that I think is really, it's a, it's an example of how a company can take control, even if it looks when it feels like the odds are stacked against them. Now, unfortunately, along the way, there was a bankruptcy that, you know, was a form of financing perhaps, but, but, you know, I think that really at the heart of what Air Canada is today, which is arguably one of the world's very best airlines, despite sometimes the, the, uh, the, 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 the snide remarks one hears about the <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> but it's um but I think that really, you know, they they took their mandate very seriously and they retooled their business model to remain relevant to the customers. Uh, and that I think is that to me was was a, a terrific experience in giving me confidence that this airline, this the airline industry can adapt, uh, it can change, uh, it can move forward. Uh, and certainly it's being tested right now. Uh, and we'll have to do similarly, I think. In the months ahead. Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting too, Charlie, is that, you know, when you think about that time, you know, and, and although you're talking about real estate, I mean, the, or sorry, you're talking about uh, airlines, the, it, in business, in real estate, that that holds true for any industry, yes. you know, because we do in, in, you know, lots of real estate investors, business owners listen to this particular podcast. When you look and say, well, aside from the airline industry, ultimately, all businesses have to learn how to adapt, how to adjust, how to make changes because, you know, clients change, you know, the, who, who our demographic is, the economic conditions change, uh, times change. So, you know, when you, because you've got lots of business background, I, I you know, I know that that kind of airline marketing thing is your thing, but it was, you know, really, you've got lots of business background. When you look at what's happening right now with COVID, are you, are you kind of, I'm sure you are, but are you kind of percolating on what this could mean to various businesses you're involved in outside of even the airline industry and just business overall? What's your kind of view of it? Yeah, no, it's um, I, I do think that not necessarily there's a, a, a universal prescription uh, for business, but I do think that there are probably two areas of activity right now that all business owners, uh, whether it's uh, you know whether it's a fixed asset real estate uh, player, whether it's an airline, or or whether it's a service provider. Uh, is probably thinking about. Uh, and, you know, there's the immediate response, which is probably a three-step focus response. One is contain the cost of cash preservation. Two is sure up the balance sheet. And then three is get ready for the new world. But the time I've been spending right now is thinking a lot about what does the new world look like. And I think that there are probably maybe three streams that are, again, relevant for all businesses um, that will feed into our understanding of that new world. There is, number one, the perception and the sentiment changes of our customers. You know, this has been obviously psychologically damaging. It's been traumatic. It's reasonable to expect that there are some fundamental consumer behaviors that are going to change through this. So I think sentiment, consumer, customer sentiment and customer 
uh, perception is is certainly that. In the travel area, you know, we're spending time now talking about what will travel look like in the future. Uh, how important will be that will that annual vacation be uh, for customers? When will businesses the, the duty of care of a business, what does that mean in terms of changes to their travel policies? Ultimately, you know, the output in all of that is trying to make sense of what will people's brand selection preferences be? What businesses will they want to frequent? Where do they want to spend their discretionary dollar? But so I think that the customer piece is huge in this, uh, but so too are the environmental factors. Uh, what changes in regulation will we see that could help or hinder? What will our competitors do? What will the comp set? be doing? How will they be trying to woo people back? How will they be repositioning themselves for recovery? But then there's also, you know, we've got, we've got a myriad of stakeholders. Every business does. We've got investors. Uh, we've got our customers, of course. We've got our employees. So what are the business needs around that and how will that shape? You know, how do we muddle through recovery and get back to sustainable profit? And those three streams of customer, external, and, and business, I believe, are probably the thing that any business owner is, is, is whether they're using that language or not, but they're probably focused on it at this point in time. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's a one fundamental that I think everybody has to, it doesn't matter whether you're in business or you've got a career or whatever that might be, what we have to really wrap our minds around is that we're going to emerge into a different world. It's not going to be what it was. And I, and I've actually been speaking with some individuals, just the nature of the business that are kind of waiting to, and thinking that it's going to, they're going to go back to what was. And I think that is going to be such a critical mistake. Yes, It's not going to go back to what it was. We have to actually future think into what the possibilities are. You know, you talk about airline, we talk about airline travel, you know, I use the, you know, after nine 11, what became, the kind of the new normal, if you will. And, and I'm cautious about using new normal, but what became a new normal is, you know, security lineups, getting yes. to the airport earlier, uh, how you actually carried on or didn't carry on. I suspect what's to say coming off of this, the next thing you know, you're, you, you know, they're going to check your bag or they're going to ask you, and how many, uh, how many masks have you got with you? How long are you gone for? You got, you're gone for 10 days. Oh, do you have 10 masks with you? Can you show them? Are you getting on the airplane with a mask? Like it could all potentially show up that way. Yes. You know, indeed. we don't know. And, 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 you know, I think that underlying all of this, and, and this is maybe a, a legacy uh, that will come from this period. Uh, and that is, as in any time of crisis, you know, we as citizenry of this country, we're, we're being asked to do things. And we're doing those things. We're complying. We're enthusiastically embracing. Hopefully we're innovating uh, as well and doing our part. But we're doing it. Underlying this is trust. And it's trust in it's trust in our government officials. It's trust in our medical experts. And I believe, particularly for, for, an, for an industry where there is always the risk of exposure to something like the airline industry, I think that, that there's going to be a much higher primacy placed on trust, trusting brands. And that should inform the way that we, in, in turn, respond to our customers. We need to respond more transparently. Uh, they need to... Uh, what happens... Behind the scenes has to come to the front of the house now, uh, meaning, you, you know, the, the, the safety, uh, not just safety, but also the sanitation, the wellness component of something that's always been implied, but never perhaps spoken about as much. I think that we're going to hear a lot more dialogue in that led by brands. Uh, 
you know, it's interesting. You've brought up trust a number of times. So, you know, when I, when I'm working with people, I actually talk about the four dimensions of trust. And I, I still believe that that is foundational. You know, the four dimensions of trust is truth. Mm-hmm. Are you telling the truth? Yes. I mean, that's a given, right? Everybody, you know, realizes that. And a lot of people think in terms of, is that person telling the truth? That's where trust lives. Yes. But it's not complete because the next part of trust and the four dimensions of, of, of trust that we're either consciously assessing or subconsciously assessing, and we're generally having the conversation, but is, you know, the, the next quadrant would be reliability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So are you reliable? Can you be trusted to show up on time, do what you say you're going to do? Is there a degree of reliability in there? So, you know, when we look at the, the, that second dimension, the third dimension of trust that I talk about is around competence Mm -hmm. because you can be telling the truth. You could be reliable, but that doesn't mean you're competent. And then also, can you be reliable in surrounding yourself with the right people so that that competence is, is part of what you're bringing to the table from others, at least, you know, building your team. Are you competent in building the team? Even if you're not competent in a specific skill, Mm -hmm. right? So we've got truth, We've got reliability, we got competence. And if you've got all of that, the next thing is the give a shit factor. And do you have heart? Do you care? Yes. Because guess what? If you don't care, all of the rest of it gets shut down. So we have to think about the four dimensions of trust in in how we're showing up, not only individually and but as a business. And so, you know, it's such a you know, you bring it up. You've actually brought up the word trust on several occasions because in the airline industry, you're always fighting against that in an ever-changing industry and a competitive industry is how do we actually assess trust? And so for me, that was, I share that with you only because it's a, it's a kind of a way to uh, look at who you're being as a brand, whether it's individually. And I, and I hold this in the world of real estate investing, real estate investors in the business of, they are their own brand often, you know, they're raising capital or doing whatever they're doing and they have to be looking at those four dimensions of trust. It's a way to break it down. Well, you know, it's very interesting also that you raise this because by breaking it down this way, um, all four of those dimensions, uh, you know, with truth and reliability and competence and and, and do you give a shit, um, all of those are actionable. Those are all things that people can directly, not just influence, but can take control of. And as you say, even with competence, well, you may not have the discipline competence, but you can bring it in. You can identify that there's the gap and bring it in. And I just, what I really like about looking at it from the four quadrant perspective is, or from the quadrant perspective, is together that does create an, an outcome. And that outcome is trust. Uh, you, you, you can't demand trust. You earn it. And you earn trust, as you say, by, by really pulling those levers. And to your point, you know, going forward, it's going to be a really critical part of how we go forward in a, in a kind of a new world, a new way of being, because it's going to change dramatically yes. and it's going to be reestablishing relationships. It's going to be uh, reestablishing, you know, how we do business in many cases. It's a, a pretty dramatic shift in something that, you know, I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about what is the future? What is the future going to be and how, to, how is it going to be for business and how is it going to be in rural, the world of real estate, et cetera? So, so as I, if you look at real estate ownership, if you, how would you characterize the, the ideal state of trust between a, a real estate owner and, let's say, a tenant? What, is the, what, what are some of the markers of trust today? 
Well, you know, something that's a great question. And, and, and so I share with you this because I think it applies in business in general, but you know, even we've even dropped the term landlord. We don't like it. We yes. call it a yeah. rental housing provider. Okay. We coined that phrase for four years ago because that's really how we hold ourselves. Good real estate investors hold themselves as that rental housing provider. So how do you communicate with your tenant? Is there communication there? So in our world, in, in Beth, treating your real estate investing like a business, it's really your tenant is your client. Mm-hmm. So even when you shift from the word tenant into client, it actually has a different connotation. That means you're there to serve. You're looking after your client. Now, there's all sorts of horror stories about tenants and all the rest of it, but I'll tell you what, when you're good at doing what you do, then how you filter tenants, how you onboard tenants, the process that you have to select tenants creates relationship and tenants who understand your values. Therefore, you align on a values-based agreement, if you will. And so it's about screening your tenants. And, and this goes back to in that world of trust is that when you align with values, because there's different demographics, you know, you you may be serving a client that is in that kind of, let's say, low income or or very uh, minimal income, though that's a different demographic. You How you serve them is way different than how you would serve, let's say, a middle class or a high income client. The, the process is the same, right? But they have different needs. How you choose those clients is the same. The filter, the the process that you have of selecting a great client is is the same, but you then are accommodating needs of that client because they're different. That's interesting. And so really a value-based relationship is 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 what you advocate as being the ideal. Yeah. yeah. You know, it just took me too long to learn that lesson, but anyways, that's <laughs> <laughs> you know, not just in real estate, buddy. <laughs> you know, you, you you taught me, you know, I'm just I'm thinking you you reminded me of something. We uh, we had a house on a lovely lovely street in the west end of uh, Toronto. And um it was next to what could only be described as a frat house. Uh, it was it was a landlord with tenants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. not a value-based relationship that person had with the tenants. <laughs> they were not clients and they were not provi- he was not a provider. But um, the kids were just out of control. And you know, I knew that going back through the landlord landlord was not going to work. Um, so I gathered the kids on their porch. They're out drinking beer one day, and I gathered together and said, guys. And so it was a value-based discussion. Uh, sure. <laughs> and it couldn't have been more fantastic. Every time that they have a party on Saturday night after that, I'd have a note on the door saying, we're going to have a party tonight at 9 o'clock. Do you want to come? <laughs> right. There's an invitation. <laughs> that's just smart. <laughs> oh, that's so smart. So so take me back a little bit you know, to the start of your journey. Because you went to university. You graduated Harvard. I don't remember what you graduated. What was your degree did you graduate with a degree out of Harvard what was your background in when you went to university yeah so I had a kind of a, a, a I mean started before university but um, I took a little detour uh, in my high school years and I started to learn Japanese uh, and I went to Japan and spent a year and a half uh, at, at a Japanese high school uh, living with a Japanese family I was 14 at the time this is back in 1982 1983. So it was a very interesting time to be in Japan. I would go for months at a time and, and never see a, a, another non-Japanese person. Um, but I got back and I continued my Japanese studies. Uh, and then I went to Brown University. Uh, and I unfortunately placed out of the Japanese program in the first year. And I thought, well, this is a lot of money not to be getting what I want. 
Um, so I did transfer to Harvard. Um, I uh, concentrated in East Asian studies, uh, mm-hmm. which included Japanese language. The irony of all that was, you know, I, I really, frankly, never thought that I would do much with it. It was just kind of a, a liberal arts passion, if you will. But if you fast forward then about six years later, I was uh, working for Virgin Atlantic and I was in an elevator with Richard Branson. And uh, he had just come out of a board meeting and said, I said, Richard, you look pretty down. What's up? He said, well, the the Japan route, the London-Tokyo route is doing so poorly that we may have to really take a hit to the reputation and uh, and stop it. I said, well, you know, as I was getting out the elevator, well, I I speak a little Japanese, so if I can help at all, just let me know. Um, And about two weeks later, he called and said, were you kidding when you said you spoke Japanese? I said, no, I speak Japanese. So he sent me to Tokyo to kind of kick the tires to see if there were some fixes. Uh, and I was very young at the time. I was 20, 22, I guess. Uh, and I came back and made some recommendations, which he liked and the board liked and accepted. And then, of course, he did the inevitable and turned around and said, well, if you think it's so easy to fix, you go do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was over in Japan for another five years. Uh, and uh, so that's been a, you know, it's very much a, a serendipity, I guess, if you will. Uh, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a statement of who you are, but uh, let's go back to that the, the the interaction. Did you get to know Richard Branson a little bit at that time? I did uh, very well, actually. He uh, because I was um, I was uh, I was the man in uh, Asia. Uh, ultimately, uh, he would come out quite often. He had uh, he had Virgin Games. He had the Virgin Megastores, uh, all with a presence in Asia. So he would come out on a variety of different business reasons. But uh, I think he found me amusing. So he always would would call me up and said, I'm coming out. Can you, can you hang out with me? <laughs> uh, so we spent a lot of good quality. Well, time. I have that same feeling whenever I, whenever I connect, <laughs> I want to come hang out with you. I know you're really good at ordering sushi. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, do, you think, do you think that was his ulterior motive? I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, lots of learning from Richard because I know, because Richard's, you know, of course a big name, you had a great opportunity to work with him. I'm sure that you, leveraged what you could of that relationship in terms of what you were learning from him as well. Is he built that way? Is he kind of like, is he, is he good at working with, did you enjoy working with him? Love working with him. I mean, the lesson, the big lesson I think he's taught, taught, uh, taught me at least was not only is it okay to dream, but it's, it's, it's okay to dream publicly. You know, I mean, he, he casts the stone really, really far uh, and he creates a vision. He paints a picture that goes well beyond what, would be most people's imaginations. And many would say, oh, that's completely, that's rubbish. It's completely unattainable. But, he, you know, he is so singular focused. And he, he actually attributes to his, his ADD, which he's, you know, it's clinically uh, conditioned for him. But he really does, he does a beautiful job in not only casting, casting the stone out there, you know, painting a picture of what people don't think could be, but he works very hard to develop the followership behind it. Um, so he understands the importance of execution as well, but vision and execution, vision and execution, vision and execution, uh, and he really does. You know, he, he he hires the team around him, kind of share uh, that. You know, that the, the aspiration. Uh, he, he he can be exhausting. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. But inspiring. Yeah, you know the. I think the note that I pick up there, though, uh, Charlie, is your. You know, your. You're 22 years old when when that happened. Yes. And I'm compelled to go back a little bit further. So tell me a little bit how, at 22 years old, 
what was your background? Like, were, what was your relationship with your parents? What was your kind of, how did you grow up? Were your parents entrepreneurial? Were they, you know, were they kind of built to drive you to do that? Like, how did you, how did this whole kind of thought process, I'm just saying is that how many people at 22 years old are going to find themselves in a position to be on an elevator with, you know, somebody like a Richard Branson, it doesn't have to be Branson, but somebody, uh, you know, a CEO of a large corporation where the CEO comes around and goes, yeah, you can be my guy. You know, let's, 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 let's give this to you. I mean, it's not that simple. You know, he, there's something that he did that said, who is Charles McKee and why would I send him on this to do this task? So give me how, what led up to 22 years on the elevator, 22 years old on the elevator. Okay. So I think that, that just to set the scene, I, I owe him a great debt of, uh, of, of thanks and gratitude because he, he obviously, he did take a risk. Uh, anyone who sends a 22-year-old boy <laughs> out to do a man's job is taking a risk. But I think that, you know, I, if we back up, uh, I, from a background perspective, I mean, I do come from a family that is, I guess you'd say a family of achievers from work in the foreign service as ambassadors or, you know, undersecretaries of, of, of state in various capacities over the decades to a great grandmother who was um, the first president of the Girl Scouts of America. Uh, wow. And Eleanor Roosevelt's good friend uh, and a real suffragette. Um, you know, I think that there, that has been something that it's a, it is a, the individual's of market achievement, I guess. Um, so growing up in that environment, it does create a little bit of a, uh, not a competitive environment, but it creates, it, it set an expectation. It set a, a self-imposed ep- expectation um, that, you know, through the gift of God, we, we're, we're, we're blessed with, with certain things, certain, certain talents, certain resources that uh, maybe others do not have. So you damn well better make the best of them. So that was kind of the message that, I grew up with. Um, and I also had very, very supportive fam- uh, family uh, parents in particular who, uh, who really did allowed and encouraged us just to be independent, uh, independent in our thinking, independent in our actions. But there was always a modicum of, of a business, a little commerce in the, in, in, in the family. And I remember as a child, uh, I had a little extra money uh, and I decided to invest it. So I invested it in a horse trailer. And I invested in a horse trailer. <laughs> That's I, a depreciating <laughs> asset in most people's world, by totally, the way. Totally, totally. But I had a client. I ah. was the provider. I had a client. Oh, okay. okay. But my sister was um, was a very competitive uh, 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 horse equestrian. She was showing uh, and showing quite far and wide. So she needed access to horse trailer. She didn't have the capital. I did. So I started a leasing company at the age of 13 <laughs> with my trailer. <laughs> I remember I used to charge, I think it was 22 cents a mile. <laughs> wow. Big money. So, I mean, that was all done with, you know, with the full acknowledgement and, 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 and consent of my, of my family. That's kind of the family I grew up in. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, though, when you come from that background, I think when people come from that background. So, you know, what I've, what I've discovered is that people can be judged about you know, the, the background they came from, you know, you, you came, you know, some might say, well, you come from a privileged family and you probably, you know, got all the breaks and all the, that, and that, and, and that can be true or not true. But you, you, the reality of it is, is that, so I, I grew up in a different scenario. I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and all the rest of it. 
where you don't see, you don't get to see what's possible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, you lived in a world of possibilities, you know, your parents, they put, you know, you put pressure on yourself. Your parents may have put pressure on you to achieve given the, the environment that you were in, you know, so, but you could also see what's possible. You know, I find that, you know, for myself and for others that I've talked to, you don't even know what's possible. You have to create, you know, you have to think differently. It's just an, it's an interesting divide of, you know, when we say we came from this, you know, when you came from, I don't know what you would call it. Would you call it privileged? I don't know. Is, is that it? Middle, 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 I guess the progressive middle-class family. Really. Yeah. Right. So there's, there's more, you know, there's possibilities that you see because you're in that environment. So it's all to say that environment is so incredibly important and how we raise our children, I think, is, you know, opening them up the doors to possibilities, right? Richard Branson, you know, how he got to this place where he just saw a huge vision. That's an example. You know, uh, Bill Gates, you know, huge vision. When you look at that quality, that level of accomplishment, it's just it's just interesting to see that. But, you know, underlying all of this, regardless, I think you're right. I think it's about... Um in part, the opportunity, and some people perhaps have a, a, a an accelerated opportunity uh, to see possibility. But I think the thing that does unite all of us, and I hope this doesn't come off sounding like it's a it's a, a privileged statement, but if we think about you know the the meaning of life, so we're all put on this world with a set of luggage, and some people's bags are fancier than others. Uh, some people's bags are empty. Some people's bags are full. And unfortunately, some people don't have bags. But yeah. but there there is, you know, if you think about all the, who you were competing with to get on this earth, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? So here we are, we're organisms on this earth. And I really do believe that the real meaning of life is exiting this world at the very least and not taking away from a resource perspective, but hopefully mm -hmm. actually contributing from a resource perspective, not just to self, not just to family, but also to community. Um, and I think that really is, that's an opportunity. That's the possibility that all of us share. And it, it sounds a little bit apple pie, I know, but 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 it's, you know, I, I really do believe that. Um, well, I think I agree with that, by the way. You know, where are you, where are you a contribution and how can you be a contribution? How can you make the world a better place? How can you leave it a better place? I think that's a, that's a you know philosophy that and a and I guess a belief that may seem to your point a little bit altruistic, but I think that's what we're all here for. Do you think that was instilled? Is that nature or nurture? You know, is that did that come from you know, just were that way, or do you think that that was actually it's part of your DNA? When did you start to kind of have that thought process? Um, I, you know, I went to a um, I went to a uh, Episcopal high school um, where. They drilled the prayers into us. Um, and of course, so you're surrounded by that. So you're in an environment of, of loving and grace and dignity. And, and if you really, whether you look at prayer uh, from a literal perspective or a metaphorical perspective, you know, some of these themes of altruism, of, of caring for neighbors, et cetera, I think that that, that certainly maybe conditioned me to, uh, wow, maybe we have a responsibility to more than just ourselves. But I think that, I do believe that all of us from a nature perspective have that in us. Unfortunately, there are circumstances uh, for many that don't allow them to fully recognize or realize that simply because of the hard scrabble focus that has to be put on, 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 on survival, frankly. 
so so I I I I would have to say that I think like so many things in, in this world, it is it's got to be the combination of nature and nurture. Mm-hmm. When you look at where you got to, you know, you know, twenty two years old, and you're you've got this job, was your kind of your career or the business that you grew into on the marketing side of things, you know, in that world of consulting and what you took on, was that something that you at some point made a decision on or did it just morph and grow? And then you found out that, Hey, I'm good at this. I really like it. And then that's how it all evolved. Or was there a, a, you know, was there a turning point or a fork in the road that really led you down the path called marketing big business? Cause there's lots of marketing people, yes, you know, that, do things, but I mean, you're working with some of the biggest brands in the world. You're working with some big players. What was the shift there for you? When did that start to happen for you? I think, you know, I think like so many people that get into, uh, get into a job. Um, I think that it was probably initially driven by, again, curiosity, uh, my interest in sociology and psychology and the way people think and the way how that actually manifests itself through commerce and, you know, I mean, uh, marketing is about influencing other people. So all that was from a kind of an intellectual standpoint was very interesting. The job that I, that I you know, kind of entered the marketing world into was like many, many of my marketing colleagues out there today. It was, I was hired for uh, a discipline. I was hired, you know, in, in my case, it was to start up the first loyalty program for uh, Virgin Atlantic Airways. Um, that got me into and, and gave me kind of, a peek into all the different manifestations of marketing, which again was a very, you know, I found that to be quite enriching. Uh, and again, from a curiosity standpoint, it, it, it continued to propel me forward. But I think the big switch, the pivot occurred when all of a sudden you have responsibility for other people. And slowly, as you move up the ranks, you move away from perhaps the thing that brought you into the business. The focus changes. And the focus then becomes increasingly about contributing at a different level to an organization. And that, for me, I think was, was, was that point at which, if you will, I kind of realized that maybe I was on the road to uh, acquiring leadership attributes that could be useful in other ways than just the discipline of marketing. So for me, it was a very much a gradual thing. It was about consolidating experiences. It was incremental exposure to to, to new environments that consolidating that and then moving forward, I think. So when you look back and you reflect in the, in those times and understanding that you're now working with teams, you're building teams, you're leading teams, how much, you know, how intentional is your own personal development, your own professional development? Do you spend a lot of time in that space over the years, Charlie? Like do you, is that a, is, is leadership a study for you? Because I know some individuals, for me, I, you know, maybe I'm not that smart, but I have to be really, really, <laughs> I have to study like hell to, to try and be the best leader I can be. Like I have to, that's, I take it on. And because I don't, I don't, for me, you know, I don't believe in necessarily in the phrase that, you know, he's a, I don't think there's a such thing as a natural born leader. I think you're, you choose to be a great leader. And it just doesn't show up. But I don't know. Is that what's your kind of view of that, given all the work you've done over the years? Because you've accomplished a lot. You've done a lot in your life. You're still a young man. Um, and there's a lot more to accomplish. So what was part of your journey in that? So, I, I, you know, for me, I think it was, um, again, it was the, it was the, 
the trust, the helping hand, the opportunity that was granted me, uh, maybe that I earned, but that was the thing that allowed me, it, it gave me the platform to, to try it out, as it were. And, and, and really, I think, though, that where I really realized that I, that I had the profile of someone who might be a decent leader was when I, when I realized that there's no good leader out there who isn't, who, 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 you're not a good leader if you don't show your vulnerability. So for me, the, probably the best attribute that I acquired uh, through reflection and maybe experience was vulnerability. I think that, you know, it's really important. Uh, and certainly it's, <laughs> these times are no more so than any, um, you know, the good leader is a human leader that is a vulnerable person. Uh, and one cannot be scared of, of showing that vulnerability. And yeah, so I think that that for me has, has been, this is a tough question. It's a really tough question because <laughs> you're asking me to dissect myself and I can't. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I can tell you only some observations and what little kind of hanging out we've done in terms of, you know, especially on the ice stuff. And then of course, what I hear from others in terms of feedback, I mean, I, I see and I hear some really, really great, great, uh, awesome qualities. And, and, and so that's not surprising given what, like I say, what you've accomplished. I guess the question really is, Charlie, and it got way down too many rabbit holes, but is that an intentional, do you study, did you study it? Were you, were you self-reflective on an ongoing basis? Were you really looking at yourself and saying, in, how am I showing up? Was it intentional for you or, or did it just kind of evolve and you just did what you did? I did it at the expense of many, many wonderful people that I had the pleasure of, of leading or trying to lead or thinking I was leading. <laughs> so I think, mm. I think it was probably more of a um, get out there and do it. Uh, a trial and error. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just do shit. Yeah, yeah. Just get shit done. Yeah. Did you have some, did you have any specific mentors along the way? Did you have some, you know, those, were you surrounded by some people that were kicking your ass going, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, I've had some, I've, I've been very fortunate in that regard. I think that is something that, you know, again, I, I have huge debts of gratitude to all those very patient people who were willing to, you know, to help guide me, <laughs> help me avoid <laughs> certain, you know, pitfalls along the way. Um, but I, I, I have been extremely, you know, and I, and I, I've been blessed with some great mentors and I'm really pleased to say that I can count today probably four of them that I still remain extremely close with, uh, regardless of the fact that, you know, this is 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, and I just, you know, I, I, uh, it's really important. It's important to set aside ego. It's important to be vulnerable. It's important to take the hand that's given you, I think. And, 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 and do that in a way. And that's something that I try to do today. I mean, if I see where my leadership has kind of gone, one is I've gotten to that age and maybe experience where there's a modicum of wisdom <laughs> that sometimes creeps into um, my thinking. <laughs> so espousing a little bit of wisdom uh, is one. But then two, um, and this is born out of my real desire to give back, you know, doing as was done to me, trying to act as an effective mentor for people who I think are, are, are seeking it. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, there's a quality that I've observed of you, which is because I, I look at my own leadership style for what it is there. There is also a place where I observe, 
right? I, I observe others and go, that's an interesting quality. Like, so for you, I observe, you know, certainly that authenticity, but also a lot of humility. I mean, you've, you've achieved a lot, but it's, you know, you're in, in what little interactions we've had, there's, there's, you're never weaving it in. So your ego is well under control. You're not boastful. You're very humble in what you've accomplished. You're pretty quiet about it as a matter of fact. So, and that's an interesting aspect of being a leader. And, and so I, when I, and I align in those particular values, I guess is, is really what that is, but it always intrigues me in the different leadership styles. When you look at the world that we have today, and let's use the, you know, let's use the extreme of a Trump versus a Trudeau, both leaders. Yes. And I mean, two totally dynamic, different opposing kind of worlds that they lead from. So it's, it's just interesting when you, when you look at leaders. So, you know, it's interesting. I was once in a, in a job interview and, um, and, and I lost the job and I knew I was going to lose the job uh, because of my answer to this. And it was a very black and white question. The question was, uh, do you lead from the front or do you lead from behind? Mm. And uh, knowing the individual, um, I knew what he wanted to hear, but I was going to give him the honest answer. An honest answer that requires explaining. And it's, for me, it's about leading from behind. It doesn't mean stepping up in a crisis. It doesn't mean directive being direct, not being directive when you have to. But what it really means is a leader is there to develop his team. And the success of the team uh, is just that, the success of the team. The failure, I will accept, uh, because that suggests that, that, that I did not lead in the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really, nothing makes me more proud than to be at the back of the room and see my team up there convincing a board of directors that that's the right decision mm. and doing it with confidence and doing it because, because they can. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, the focus on they can, it can come in many different forms, but for me, it really is about, and I don't like this term, but it's about being the servant leader, as it were, it's serving the team just the way, you know, many of your listeners as, as, as providers, the providing the provision of providing a service is is very much that as well. When you look at what you've accomplished over your years of business, um, do you have a definition for success? I do. And it's unfortunately kind of, it, it falls maybe into a bunch of adjectives. But but I think that success really is the characters, characterization of success from a mechanical standpoint is, if not the straight line execution to a vision, then it's the course correction along the way to get to that vision. Mm -hmm. So that's the mechanical side. But I think that the attributes of of success are it having been done, whatever that having been done is with dignity, with integrity, and with a sense of purpose. So, you know, those adjectives to me are the things that define success. Have you been, um, you know, when you look over the years, what's your kind of view? I mean, you've, you've, like I say, we, we, we recognize or recognize you've accomplished a lot. You've done some really great things and that's awesome. Have you ever kind of been in a phase of what you're going through that you just want to shut down? You're going to go, fuck it. I'm done. Like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, very much so. 
Yeah. Yeah. Wait. Okay. So, what? Very much so. and I will tell you know what I, and I <laughs> said, everything's on the table, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything's on the table. Yeah. Excellent. No, I know your listeners probably won't be able to see this because it's a podcast, but behind me are, um, it's an oil painting of three monks in an iron, in their orange robes. And those monks, uh, are particularly meaningful for me, uh, because, you know, uh, about a year and a half ago, yeah, it was a year and a half ago. I, I was at the end of my rope. I was, I'd just come off just a grueling assignment of having to restructure a very well-known hotel company, was, uh, U.S. operations. Um, and, and frankly, without the right support, and I really, it took a psychological toll on me, uh, you know, to be, you know, <laughs> to join the organization and the mandate not having been explained that the first order of business was to look at 250 people all working in corporate jobs and select 50 of them for retention and just 200 of them for dismissal within five weeks. Um, <laughs> that was, you know, and that was, uh, that was the start of the assignment. But the, when the assignment was over about a year later, um, I was just fried. I was absolutely fried. And a very dear friend of mine who, you know, looked at me and said, just give me two weeks. I said, have whatever you want. He said, okay, fine. And all of a sudden I get, through email, an airline ticket, uh, itinerary receipt. And it was sending me to Bangkok. And I said, so what, what, what am I doing? And he said, I don't want you to look at anything. You're just going you're gonna, you're gonna to take this ticket because you're a humble man. I booked you in a middle seat in economy class and you're just going to go. <laughs> and I will tell you once you get there what you're going to do. So I got to Bangkok and he said, you're going to carry on to a place called Suratani and you're going to a monastery. And I had my phone and I literally, he told me what to pack, which was nothing. I had my phone. I did a quick scan of this, this monastery and it said something. I think I, I ended up on a page about yoga. So I thought, oh, I'm going to a yoga retreat or something. I got there and it's, it's an absolutely wonderful place, but it, it was not about yoga. It was about meditation. I've never meditated in my life. It, oh, It was about silent meditation. It was 11 days of silent meditation. Hmm. From the day that I arrived, you know, you you, you basically you, you show up. They assign what they call a cell to you, which is a it's a concrete berth. I fortunately had a um, I had a yoga mat because I thought I was going to yoga, so I could sleep on the yoga mat. But <laughs> but it really was it was the most amazing experience. I had no clue about about breathing, about about guarding one's breath, about visualization about all the kind of the components of, of meditation. Uh, but I learned it pretty damn quick. And it was, it was really the most exhilarating experience. It's the best 11 days I've ever spent in my life. Uh, and that, for me, was the ultimate. It was the existential recharge that I've been looking for all my life. I just didn't know it. It took my friend to tell me I needed it. <laughs> mm. That's so awesome. Yeah, you, you know, Stephanie and I have meditated for many years. We were trained in uh, Transcendental Meditation, TM. Okay, but uh, and we're it's funny you say that we're going to all things being equal, we're booked to go to a seven day meditation retreat. Fantastic! In uh, at the end of May, so uh, fantastic! I'm yeah, so, it's a I'm cool so experience. That's so, true. so what did you when what did you take away? You know, from that particular, what did you learn about yourself, perhaps in that experience? You know, what 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 really sticks with you today? You know, breathing, you know, we joke all the time, remember to breathe, you know, yes. like in stressful situations, yes. it will remind people just remember to breathe. And yes. and it seems so silly, but you, you, you know, 
if you've been through that experience, you realize what that means. Yes. And, you know, so Stephanie still to this day will look at me and go, dude, remember to breathe. Right? Oh, absolutely. Go, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> yeah. I know. And, it's, and you, you, you know, you, you undoubtedly, you intuitively use that. You're out, you're out amongst your, your members when you're doing, you do big events, you're on stage a lot. Um, it, it just, in so many different points in our lives, breathing is so important. So that's one of the things. I mean, one of the things, you know, it gave me a new sense of meaning of a breath as not just the energy of life, but the force of our lives. So that was certainly very, uh, very close, close, close to the heart coming out of that experience. But the thing that actually, and there is a parallel in today's situation, I learned that voice is our most dominant sense. And it is dominant in the sense that it truly dominates all of our other senses. It dominates how we hear, it dominates how we see, it dominates our sense of, of, of smell and taste. And, 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 it, and to me, what I really learned was by shutting up, by not vocalizing, by not talking, all of a sudden, all those other senses come alive. And it's absolute wonderful, wonderful feeling when hearing becomes listening, when, when, when seeing becomes regarding, you know, uh, when all of a sudden your olfactory senses open up and that happened and it happened, it happened about day four on this 11 day uh, meditation retreat, uh, because there was no talking for, for 11 days. And, you know, it's very interesting though voice has been reintroduced into my <laughs> repertoire, um, you know, I'm sitting in Toronto today, city of 7 million, and we are obviously, like the rest of the world, in uh, a time when connectedness of human beings, how we connect with the city is being challenged, it's temporarily suspended. So we walk, we, we walk with the dogs, um, and I'm seeing things that I never saw before in this city. I'm hearing things. And, and that, to me, is, it's almost a, it's the reminder, it's what meditation did to me it's a reminder of how important that is and how actually how accessible it is for us if we allow it to happen unfortunately for me it's generally an external force that forces that whether it's silence or the silence of meditation or the silence of the city today Uh, but i think there are some lasting lessons that come out of that what you've got going on right now and, and in the past there's a there's a degree of discipline meditation is is a practice it takes discipline it actually you know, it, it, you have to think about it, but you know, I don't, you know, sometimes I go through periods of time where I meditate consistently every day. And then I go through periods of time where I'll skip a month where I didn't meditate and go, shit, here I go again. I got to get back to my meditation. Cause I'm, you know, my brain is, you know, I got to get reconnected to myself, but there's so many things out there right now, Charlie, that give us the opportunity to be disconnected. And so I'll use social media in your own practice, because that is, you know, the fricking phones and Facebook or Instagram <laughs> or Yahoo, whatever the, you know, there's so much out there. How do you find yourself in terms of your own discipline around that? Are you pretty disciplined about it or, or do you find yourself getting easily distracted? Have you had to put in corrections, so to speak? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, for me, for example, meditation as a means for grounding myself, um, I, I take strength in, in knowing it is there. Mm-hmm. Um, I take strength in, in knowing that it's, it's my aid to life, as it were. My actual practice of it now, I, I'm not disciplined about it. Um, but I take a certain uh, comfort in knowing that it's, it, it, it literally is a, 
It's a it's, tool that you have access to anytime. It's, it's a seating pose and, and deep breathing away. So that's very important. But I think that there's also something else you've, you've, you've just described, which is perhaps the big threat for everyone. And that is there's so much noise out there. There's so much clutter out there. How do we keep our heads when everyone else is losing theirs? And, and this is, you know, this, this whole notion of which, you know, the practice of meditation and many other activities that people may, 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 may pursue uh, can allow for. This, this, particularly now, now more than ever, we really do need to be able to go within ourselves, I think, uh, to remain steady. And that could be a whole show in of itself. <laughs> oh, you know, the world is is seeking leaders. There's no doubt about it. More now than ever and more than ever to come, you yes. know, as we come out of this whole mess. Do you have a view of the crisis? You know, I mean, I know that you're, you've, you've got your horses and your breeding stock and that's, that's, I mean, as much as it was kind of a hobby, it's turned into, a, I think it's turned into a, a real going concern in terms of business. So you're, you know, you've got to be at the effect of all that's happening here, but how do you see, are you a pandemic guy or are you a scamdemic guy? Are you a, you know, where, where do you sit on that line? That's, that's very interesting. Um, I, I, I would say I'd probably vote pandemic, you know, I mean, certainly, uh, yeah, even if the, if the numbers, well, they've already reached pandemic, you know, levels. So I think this, there should be no question about that. Um, what, what, what I what I don't, I don't take the cynical view that people are using this situation broadly to manipulate the thinking of the world. Uh, I believe, and I've always, you know, I've, I've had trust in leaders. I, I, as I hope, I have been a trustworthy leader, leader myself. Um, I appreciate some of the very hard choices that that leadership, uh, leadership in government, for example, today uh, is making. Um, but I really do believe that this is not. As despite what maybe a certain leader in the world might say, this this is not some scam to upend an election. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is real. It's mm -hmm. um, a big deal. But I think that you know where where and again, this is control what we can. What I think we can control is our thinking. And so when I think about this current situation, I think of the activities and the ventures that are important to me. Um, what what I've given myself permission to do now is really start thinking and trying to start the dialogue about what could be the scenarios of recovery. And we touched on it earlier, but, but mm -hmm. you know, looking at more broadly, to me, that gives the hope, uh, the inspiration. And it's, it's, it's the timing of recovery we do not know, but I think that it's important in every business owner, everyone who's a part of a family or a community uh, can and should be thinking about, okay, so what do the recovery scenarios look like now? Uh, and what can I do to be ready for it when the world is ready for us? As mm. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're just barely three weeks into it at this point of this conversation today. Yes. So it will be very interesting. You know, we know that we're locked down for sure. Another 30, we can probably say for sure. Another 60, they're still hedging on that bet a little bit, yes. but I think that it's in the general consensus is is that it'll be at least another 60 days yeah. before yes. anything starts to free up. Um, and we'll see how that goes. And when you, from a business point of view right now, are you just kind of uh, being really truly the observer and 
have you have you done some risk mitigation? So if you're sharing with some individuals some risk mitigation, so in the world of real estate, I can say, you know, liquidity is, is key, get liquid. If you're going to defer payments, great. Doesn't mean you have to spend that money, but keep it liquid. The whole point is getting liqu- liquid because, I mean, when you look at businesses that are shut down, you know, the, I think there was a, a, a guy I listened to the other day talking about, just as an example, the theater business, let's say they did $200 million in a particular year, or particular quarter, did $5,000 in that same period of time. So the impact of businesses literally shutting down, the supply chain broken, the uh, economic impact. For somebody like you, you're accomplished. You've seen a lot of adversity, at least in other businesses. What what would you say people need to, business owners, for example, or people in general, what do, they, what do you think they need to be prepared for? What would you give them for guidance? I think that, again, regardless of the uh, the business one is in, I think that there are probably three phases of, 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 of action. Uh, and the first is absolutely about preservation of cash, containment of costs. You know, my, my month of March, uh, the first, the second half of the month, we were challenged with my airline client to take out $500 million in fixed costs, mm. not just the variable cost of flying, but $500 million in fixed costs. Uh, within seven days. And that required an absolute deconstruction of the business itself, looking at every, scrubbing every kind of aspect of the business, from supply chain to uh, to, to workforce, uh, to anything that was a cost driver had to be looked at. And I think that every business is doing that, either formally or informal basis. But I think that really a formalized approach is a very important one to take at this point in time. And then the other is the balance sheet, you know, shoring up that balance sheet from, you know, fortunately here in Canada, we've got some, the government is moving aggressively, uh, I think, to try to put in some support programs, you know, particularly for the small business loan or the wage subsidy support program. You know, I would imagine many of your listeners are either actively uh, involved in that or considering an application to it. Um, and, you, you know, I think that those, those, those programs, there's no shame and pursuing them. And they may be the lifeline for unexpected consequences down the road. So on that scale, again, with airline client in Europe, we're looking at it from the perspective of what are the government programs uh, that we can be pursuing. Uh, we're in discussions with uh, with the government of that country uh, on recapitalization. Uh, so all these things are about the balance sheet, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. and, that, and, and the reason why balance sheet is so important is because it's the foundation of how we're going to move forward. Today, we have no product. Today, we have no service. Today, we have no revenue. So what do you do? You've got to get ready for the fight. You've got to get ready for the comeback. Uh, You've got to have the resources to be able to manage through a recovery, which is not going to be an overnight recovery. Um, It's going to be a very, very slow growth recovery, in most sectors at least. Now, the Toronto real estate market, the Vancouver real estate market, you, you'll probably have a view on that. But but, um, but this is profound, I think. And as a business owner, uh, we've got to take the steps now to be ready for tomorrow. Yeah, it is going to be, it is profound. It, I think it's, you know, we've, as business owners, we got to be prepared to do that gritty work. It's going to be a grind. And you got to be, you know, line item by light item, go through it, you know, it's boring. There's nothing exciting about it, but it really is being yes. 
methodical, pragmatic, thoughtful in how you go forward. You know, in in one of my businesses in the retail business, the whole industry shut down. So it's not even a case of I had to close my retail businesses. The industry shut down. Yeah, and and there's they don't even know if or when when let alone if what let alone when it will will kick back into gear right so it is definitely an interesting time as we sit here today and to you know to your point is that where do you risk mitigate you know where do you where do you take and run your costs down i still have a burn rate you know even with my businesses closed staff i had to lay off you know in the re- retail industry but even at that, there's still a burn rate. There's still the functionality of the business, whether it be utilities or negotiated, renegotiated rent. And, you know, there, there's all sorts of the impact of that, which is really quite dynamic. And it, and we don't even know as we sit here today what that outcome is going to be or what the, you know, what when is it going to change yeah. or the, yes. when, when's the door going to open again? We don't know. Indeed. And that's, I mean, that I think is the, that unknown variable, you know, I mean, with, with the virus being a, a pandemic believer, with the virus really in control of that timing, there's really no certainty around that. I mean, it's been interesting from a modeling standpoint to look at projections, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to listen to some learned uh, individuals talk about lag times and apexes, and that's all helpful, uh, but it's not definitive, really. Uh, no, it isn't, is it? There's a, a mindset around that, uh, that we, you know, this goes back to thinking in half-day increments. I mean, yes. it's like, you may as well stay present. There's there's certain things that you can control. Most of it you can't control. I mean, what's what's going on right now? All you can really control is your attitude, your emotions, your mindset, your your actual mental view of what's happening in the world, and try and you know run your own scenarios. What if the possibilities? You yes. know, it goes back to. I just know we got to come out the other side and uh, lead into this. And it would be great to figure out. To work from what is the running start? You know, yes. is, do I need more education? Do I need more resources? Yes. Who am I, you know, what yes. is the relationships I can create right now? What is the plan I can put together together? And then that and that's probably the third phase, which is really getting ready for the new the new world order, whatever that looks like. That, you know, you talked earlier about what's your learning style? How did how do you become the person that you are? And, and I think behind any of discussions about transformation, and this is a transformation. There is, there's vision and, you know, it's about, it may be about being in the present now, but it's, it's also, it's about taking a playbook from Richard Branson and setting that vision for your business on the other side. And then perhaps looking, doing a realistic assessment of what are the building blocks to get there? Uh, We can't say when, but we can probably say how, and that how is made up of actions and choices and decisions that we as as business leaders can take. Mm -hmm. They say that crisis is just preparation for the next crisis. It's really true. <laughs> you know? More cynically, they say, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> <laughs> never waste a good crisis. <laughs> That's true. And we, we can't do that. It'll be uh, interesting. You know, we had uh, parents and grandparents, well, mostly grandparents, great-grandparents that went through wars. And, yes. and it actually defined yes. how they lived life thereafter. Yes. You know, yes. and uh, I think this is a, you know, this is ultimately, you know, philosophically going to be a really big reset because all of a sudden now people are having to hang out with their significant others yes. be in an environment where they've had to create it. They're working from home. Now they've got their significant other, a couple of kids running around doing all of the things that are happening there. 
But what's interesting about this is cost of living is dropping significantly. <laughs> short of short of rent and, and alcohol. Yes. I mean, really, you don't need much of a wardrobe anymore. You know, we, we really don't. I got this shirt on and then I'm not even going to tell you what's under this, but there is this, you know, the need for a wardrobe that, you know, you're not going to movies, you're not going to restaurants, you know, your vacation this spring is going to be shut right down. Well, you know, so, if, if it wasn't so damn environmentally unsustainable, it would be great to have one big yoga pant burning party at the end of this. <laughs> Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So when you're, as you're looking at this from a business perspective, I am interested in hearing about how's this impacted you on the horse side of things, because I know that is a big passion for you and it, it, you're, you're playing a pretty interesting game in that. So what are you doing in the, in your horse world these days? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. Now just for the listeners, a little background on that. So, um, this was born out of a, a passion, um, always like yourself, a lifelong rider. Um, and I encountered a horse, a type of horse, uh, uh, a, a few years ago in, in Europe, in Switzerland, um, that I'd never seen before. And it was a wonderful horse. It was a great gait. Uh, and the breed itself it just had a terrific reputation. So um, with my sister, proving that, yes, family can do business well together, <laughs> we got together and we started a company uh, that's based out of Virginia in the United States. Um, and what we do is we, we import this breed of horse is called a Freiburger, and we are introducing the Freiburger breed uh, to North America. Uh, we're still very small. We only have uh, we have half a do- we have a dozen horses now. But the, the really cool thing is, we brought over some of the mares uh, pregnant, so we fly them over, and their babies have been born. Their foals have been born, uh, so they're the the first Freibergers born in the, the the first generation. And just from a practical impact standpoint couple things. Uh, one is we're at a phase with the business where we would normally be working with the what's called the National Stud of Switzerland uh, to actually fly in the sperm and do artificial insemination of the horses. That has completely been shut down. So one again, once again, uh, consequence of global supply chain shut. Um, so that will that will throw off, you know, if you look at if you look at the gestation of a horse, that will throw us off for a year. So we had four mares that we're going to be impregnated this year. Um, so that changes, if you will, kind of the rate of growth of, 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 of the herd. But the other thing, which is actually more personal and more frustrating, is that we have, uh, we have two mares that are just about to foal, uh, and they're in Virginia, and I'm in Canada, and there's nothing more that I'd like to do than to, to be present. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, 100%. So, so I'm just hoping they'll hold on for another couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm a horse guy, as you, as you recall. Yes. I got a history of, of, of doing yes, some do. stuff in the background training. And uh, so I, I really get what you mean by that. So, But really, the direct impact of COVID is more about uh, transportation. That's really yes. kind of where you're at with it. So you've got a, you see that shift going back to somewhat, I call, I'll use the, ner- the normal, you'll, you'll, you, you see it going back to whatever it's going to be, but ultimately in this particular business model, you're, you're on top of it. Yeah. And I think that actually the other thing that, that, um, that's interesting for us, if we think about our, our market, um, our market is, it's a fairly discerning market, somewhat exploratory, new breed, et cetera. But the impact I think on our breeders in general uh, is quite profound. Uh, this is not, there's not, there's a lot of breeding that would have taken place that will not take place this year. So, you know, in some indirect way, if we fast forward a year, uh, we've got a number of, of yearlings uh, 
uh, that will be ready for you know training in another eighteen months or so. Uh, and we 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 actually may see a spike in interest in 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 our little herd uh, because of what's happened more broadly from a macro standpoint. This could be less supply available, uh, and so you know we'll see. But it's a it's a small business, and it's we're small business owners in this. Yeah, you know we. Uh... I could actually talk with you for quite some time, but we do have to wind our conversation down. But there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about just from a kind of a who you are in, in, you know, like how you see yourself. I don't get that you, did you ever go through a phase where you're busy comparing yourself to others? I see that a lot with individuals that are comparing their, their success to others. As a matter of fact, that's what kind of drives them. Did you ever go through that period of time or, and were you conscious that you did or didn't do it? You know, no, for me, you know, as a, as a, as a, a, an openly gay man, for me, it was a different dynamic. It wasn't about comparing myself to others from the perspective of how can I be like them or I'm not as good as them. Uh, for me, it was a more fundamental, uh, it was more kind of a question of, well, hold on, why aren't I like what perceptively was, why aren't I like my heterosexual friends? <laughs> so it was a different, you know, it was kind of a different, it was, a, it was questioning, but it was a different type of questioning. So I've, you know, I guess I've been in my little psychological bubble, my self bubble for <laughs> quite comfortably for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as we wind down, I just wanted to touch back because I know that that sometimes is is you know one of those qualities that can either inspire people to take action, but I don't, you know, I've never got that from you. I, I was just wondering if it was a conscious thing or is just more uh, just the way you're built. You were never kind of in that. You were just not not that way. No, but I am very conscious of, of the achievements of others uh, it, it, for them, you know, in, in a way of, of wanting to celebrate uh, what they're doing, uh, wanting to learn from their journeys, as it were. But uh, I've, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm pretty firmly holding my own tiller here. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was probably a whole other conversation, but, you know, in the world of, uh, you know, being an openly gay man, was it always that way for you? Did you did you, cause you hear different paths and, you know, gay man going, you know, I, I, I was in denial or I hit it from my, you know, like, or were you, did you pretty much own it right from the start? Was that your kind of background with it or was it a big journey, you know, with lots of headwinds at the, you know, I mean, certainly just because yeah. of the, at the day and age, cause you know, openly gay is easy these days. I shouldn't say easy. I, I have no, actually, I don't know if that's true or not. I just, think yes. it is. Yeah. Um, what was it for you? Well, I think that I'm, for me, it was, uh, you know, I was kind of coming of age uh, in the 1980s uh, through the 90s. Uh, I, I think that I was very fortunate um, in having very supportive friends and family uh, around mm. me. So I, I guess if you look at it on the, on, on the scale, uh, the easy street scale, um, uh, I was very fortunate in that regard. Uh, and mm. that was... You know, we, we spoke a little bit about the family makeup before and, it, you know, it was a pretty progressive family. Um, so that was, mm-hmm. that was helpful. It was helpful. They grew up in the hippie year. <laughs> uh, that opens up, we can just open up all sorts of different conversations. As we wind down, I like to uh, finish up the podcast with some rapid fire questions and uh, you ready? Sure. Okay. These are easy for you. Uh, give me a book that you're reading. What's your favorite book to gift or share with people because it's so meaningful? 
So there's a book called uh, the, the the End of Your Life Book Club uh, by uh, Will Schwalbe, and it's the most fantastic, wonderful exchange of a son with a mother. She is dying from cancer. They start communicating through the books that they love, and they're none of the books that you would think. Uh, and it's a really it's a wonderful, wonderful, touching story. Cool, love it. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Well, you know, it was funny. I came across one. I think that changes. It's, you know, it's contextual. Of course. But I came one. It came from the greatest raconteur of the world, that most wonderful person who is poet, be what he is. We know him as Ted Giselle. We also know him as Dr. Seuss. And I just came across <laughs> it today. It was a reminder of it. And he said this. And I've actually got it right here someplace. Hold on one sec. Here we go. Dr. Seuss. When something bad happens, you have three choices. You can either let it define you, let it destroy you, or you can let it strengthen you. Mm. And how's that for a quote for the times? That is so, so, that's a great quote. I've actually, I've heard it before, but it's been a long, long time. The other, one, the, the other one I think, which is a great quote for the, the times, is the poem, uh, Rudyard Kipling's If. Mm-hmm. Well worth reading, rereading. Very good. If. Yeah. Kipling, If. Yeah. Cool. Dr. Seuss, totally rabbit hole. Just was, uh, I was reading the book Quiet. Uh, have you read the book Quiet? Introverts, no, extrovert. It, it's kind of, it's very, very interesting. Okay, good. Um, but one of the things that they talk about is Dr. Seuss, who's, of course, we know him as the most famous writer for kids' books. He's a total introvert, and kids scared the shit out of him. He could not be around gangs of children and because he was scared. And uh, yet, that's what he did. So it was an interesting little uh, that story that the author shared about Dr. Seuss. So the Grinch was not just uh, the metaphor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> if heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? <laughs> We've been waiting for you. <laughs> to, which, waiting. to which I probably respond, I'm so sorry I'm late, but um, I had things to do. <laughs> <laughs> Shit done. Yeah, get things done. What's your favorite swear word? Oh, I, I'm a good boy. <laughs> you know, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. Yeah, are you an f bomber? I'm an f bomber for okay, sure. I'm, I'm fuck I mean, all over the place. Yeah. Oh, I can't answer that one. I'm passing on that one. <laughs> <laughs> what are you not very good at, but you keep trying to do it, or you keep doing it anyways? So I went to bull riding school. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was in Strathmore, uh, Alberta. And I really sucked at it. I really sucked at it. But, you know, it was my big, the, the big coming out. And there I was. And you, what is it? Six seconds. You have to be on a bull to register yeah. anything. I was yeah. up for 4.5 seconds. And the bull stomped on my abductors. And it was just a mess. Right. <laughs> but, 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 uh, so I haven't gone back to do that. But, I love watching on TV bull riding, and I just feel like I am like there. I'm living vicariously. <laughs> I could have been that guy. <laughs> Room or your desk or your car? What do you clean first? Car, but not the exterior. There's nothing no. worse than, than driving down the highway and seeing dust mites walk across your dashboard. <laughs> that bugs you. Okay. Uh, favorite tune? Anything you got going on right now? Yeah. Lovely day. Lovely in the day. world of uh, in the world of shut in, favorite movie. Uh, favorite movie right now is movie series. Can we do series? Series is Rake. It's a Australian broadcast uh, series. 
R-A-K-E. It's fantastic. Okay. Is that a Netflix thing? Yes, it is. Rake. Yeah. Okay. What are you grateful for? Sun coming up in the morning, moon mm. coming up at night. I mean, I really, truly, I think the rhythm of life is weird as it is right now. They're the laws of, of nature will persist through all this. Yeah. I'm grateful always for my guests. I'm particularly grateful for you, Charlie, just for who you are in our life. And um, I'm really grateful for my wife today. She's awesome. She is absolutely awesome. I can attest for that. <laughs> you can and, attest to that. And this is, this is huge virtual hugs to both of you. I really mean it. It's so, you know, we are blessed in having friends that we respect, that we love, that we learn from. Uh, yeah. So thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.